to the BNEX podcast. Today, Dr. Kevin O'Connell and me, Dr. Dylan George, are here to continue our discussions on technologies that can help with the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. On this podcast, we have been discussing how a range of technologies are being used uh, in, in the fight. Those discussions have taken us from data technologies to vaccines, to synthetic biology, to novel visualizations, and a range of other topics. Today, we're going to talk more about testing technologies. This has been in the news quite a bit for the past three months. And who better to have that discussion with than our very own Kevin O'Connell. Thank you. Cheers in the background. <laughs> so uh, before we jump into talking about testing, um, we just wanted to have a couple comments uh, uh, right off the top about the current state of the pandemic. Now, I mean, as we've known since the beginning, um, since January, um, it's very clear to all of us that the pandemic continues to be bad. Um, you know, as of today, which is Friday, uh, May 22nd, globally, there are over 5 million cases, 300,000 deaths that we know of. In the United States, there's over 1.5 million cases, and we are approaching 100,000 deaths. Now, you know, we've talked in the past that these are numbers on the level because of the economic disruption, the political disruption, and the morbidity and mortality, these are national security priorities and are disrupting our nation. From my perspective too, these, these are staggering numbers that are almost losing their meaning. Um, but it, as I was uh, looking at these numbers this morning, one of the things I wanted to definitely remember was that each one of these represents a person and families that are grieving for the loss. Um, you know, at times it's easier just to think abstractly about these numbers, but they're real people. And uh, we, for me personally, I need to keep sight of that and make sure that that's ever present in, in the way I'm thinking about this. Absolutely. The, the numbers are, 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 they are staggering. That's the, that's the word that keeps coming back to my mind. And in terms of scale, uh, I mean, we're almost, it's almost the equivalent of two whole Vietnam wars. Yeah. In, in the course of three months, and uh, and I think um, I think you're exactly right, Dylan. Uh, uh, if if that doesn't constitute uh, a problem uh, on the scale of national security, I'm not sure what does. Especially when you're with the, the economic uh, consequences that uh, that the country is facing. Completely agree. Yeah, mm -hmm. and 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 that's why I am so grateful for how people are coming together to respond to the pandemic by staying home when possible, when wearing a mask, when out and about, keeping six feet from others to try to cut down on, on potential spread, and helping where you can. I mean, it's been really inspirational to see what people are trying to do to come together. I mean, we're all in this together, and together we'll beat this virus. Absolutely. You know, uh, many states are reopening. You know, we've, we've seen calls from various governments and localities that are um, uh, moving to a reopening stance. And as we move to reopen – um, we definitely wanted to spend just a, a moment talking about uh, this. I, uh, one of the myths that we're starting to see being discussed about the pandemic, and and we we hopefully we can dispel this myth a little bit. Um, and this is this myth of open versus closed, this kind of two-step process. And 
you know, we, we shouldn't think in terms of open or closed, on or off, a two-step sort of process. We should think about our current situation like a dimmer switch. And how can we slowly open up in phase steps to protect against an uncontrolled surge in cases that would threaten our healthcare system and cause economic downward spiral? And so I, I think this dimmer analogy is a very good one because it helps us think about what are the phases on how we can move forward instead of just jumping whole hog back into being open. And so there are a couple of different groups that have put together some very thoughtful guidance and some very thoughtful me uh, metrics on how to um, open up in a safe and way from an epidemiological perspective. Uh, a particular good one is COVID-19, a frontline guide for local decision makers. And this was recently released by the Nuclear Threat Initiative and Center for Global Development and um, uh, Georgetown Universities. Um, you can access that one at covid-local.org. Um, and we'll put those links in the notes so people if want to follow up on that. Uh, you know, another good one is a joint effort um, between Resolve to Save Lives and U.S. Digital Response and the Duke Margolis Center for Health Policy, and uh, among others. And that one's at uh, www.covidexitstrategy.org. Um, and again, we'll put those links in the notes. But those are very thoughtful sorts of concepts uh, to move forward and think about how to use that dimmer switch to phase in being open or not. And um, and so if you have a chance, I, I would highly recommend taking a look at those materials. Um, there's um, been some really good people working on those and some really excellent thoughts uh, instantiated in both of those in both of those sites. But we have some good news, though, too, don't we, Kevin? Yes, absolutely. You know, um, one of the biggest questions that uh, that we have around uh, around this outbreak is um, is uh, it has to do with immunity, <clears throat> and uh, they are interlocking questions. One is: Is it possible to make a vaccine for COVID-19? And the other one is related scientifically, and that is: If you uh, if you recover from a COVID-19 infection, are you immune to future infection? And both of these speak to, you know, what is the immune system's response to this virus? <clears throat> and so. Uh, there were um, there were in, uh, a pair of studies uh, that share some authors that came out of um, several institutions in the Boston area uh, this past week that give um, that are again they're preliminary. Uh, we have only been in this uh, for a few months, which is a, the blink of an eye scientifically, but uh, uh, but they do, they do shed uh, some some glimmers of hope. Uh, on the vaccine and the uh, and the and the the post-infection immune story. Um, one is uh, a group um, led by scientists at Beth Israel, uh, Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, uh, immediately began to make uh, some uh, some candidate vaccines of the DNA vaccine variety, and we'll talk about we we mentioned those a little bit uh, on a past podcast, and we will yeah, last uh, delve into yeah. that yeah. last week with Lou Borio, and we'll delve into those uh, again in a later edition. But they devised several candidates and inoculated rhesus macaques, which is a species of non-human primate um, monkeys in the vernacular. Uh, but they are, uh, uh, you know, they are one of the uh, frontline uh, top animal models for uh, for testing um, that are as close as you can get to humans, uh, just about. Uh, we won't get into that. Uh, we can go. That's a that's a longer story we can get into. But. Um, the good news is that one of the candidates was highly effective in 
protecting rhesus macaques from uh, from challenge with a uh, with a, a dose of SARS-CoV-2. And this challenge is the same topic that we discussed earlier uh, in another podcast. Actually, we discussed it at the end of last week's podcast as well. This is a kind of study that people are um, uh, are more comfortable doing in animals uh, than we are in humans. We don't like to administer uh, fully virulent pathogens to humans <clears throat> in vaccine trials, uh, but, we, but we will do it to test efficacy in animal models. And so, um, and so it. it the fact that this uh, that this candidate vaccine uh, that was quickly devised by the uh, by the the folks at Beth Israel Deaconess right after the um, right after the the Chinese group uh, released the full genome sequence of SARS-CoV-2 back in January is is very good news and it suggests that one of the hundred plus at least one if not more of the hundred plus vaccine efforts that are going on right now um, will eventually bear fruit. The second study uh, is related to the first, and that is the, the, the key result there is that rhesus macaques were inoculated with SARS-CoV-2 not having been immunized before and allowed to uh, run the course of the disease and recover, and then were re-challenged later. And those rhesus monkeys uh, recovered. Actually, they were immune from reinfection after uh, after that uh uh, after recovering from a primary infection. So that suggests, again, that if the people who recover will have, will have immunity. We don't know how long-lasting yet. Again, only a, only a few months has gone by. But both studies taken together show the challenge either by the live vaccine, uh, the, either the live virus itself and then recovery, or a vaccine derived from the virus uh, can confer immunity on animals that are evolutionarily relatively close to humans. So that means that, as I said, one or more of the 100 plus efforts may yield, you know, may yield a, uh, uh, a workable vaccine. It's, you know, it's, it's pretty it, staggering is another, uh, there's another way in which all this is staggering. Um, the amount of resources go, that go into 100 plus vaccine development efforts globally is an astonishing sum of money. And all of those efforts kicked in before these results were available. So people really just jumped into this all over the world uh, with, you know, and, and, and are working on these things in parallel to attempt to get to the, you know, to get to the, the vaccine solution as quickly as possible, if possible. So I'll just, yeah, I'll just yeah, yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. And the only yeah, thing I would add I would there, add too, there is too, is that, is that those are exciting results. But we also need to be cautious about those results because they're, they're studies in primates, um, and uh, the, the results, uh, we're not exactly sure that we're going to see the same sorts of uh, results in humans, but they are very, very encouraging. Uh, and um, it is exciting to see that we're seeing such good results um, at this stage, and so nothing but encouragement there. Right. So, again, you're right. Small uh, Caution is warranted. There are small numbers of animals. Um, uh, a short duration of the experiment. We don't know how long this immunity will last. Um, you know, we uh, there there are some viruses for which um, uh, recovery from a single infection or a single dose of a vaccine confers confers lifelong immunity. Other um, other viruses uh, and other pathogens require boosters over time, and we just won't know. Um, we just won't know how many how many shots over a lifetime one may need. Uh, until we're much, much further along. 
So uh, in addition to the that very positive animal data uh, out of the the Boston groups, uh, there's news this week. Um, the federal government, of course, has initiated what they call Project Warp Speed, which is um, a very broad uh, and well reasonably well funded uh, effort to uh, to put money and heft behind several uh, of the of the vaccine efforts. Um, they have made a sizable bet on the large pharma company AstraZeneca uh, with 1.2 billion dollars to begin manufacturing development prior to receiving regulatory approval for a virus and uh, a vaccine, I should say. Um, and they are partnered with Oxford University, if I'm not mistaken. One of the things that's really interesting about the AstraZeneca deal is that they've agreed to provide at least 400 million doses to the United States. And these first doses may be available as soon as the fall or early next year, pending issues in the manufacturing process and the regulatory process. Um, you know, emphasis definitely should be placed on may be available. Now, this is a historic feat. If they're able to accomplish this and push these things out, um, it would be exceptionally exciting if they were successful. And I'm really pulling for them. But we definitely need to be cautious. And until we actually have shots going into arms and people being safe from this, uh, we should we should hold out caution. <clears throat> what? Um, so this is one. This is this is one of the 100 plus vaccine efforts. Um, what do we think about the likelihood that this is that this is uh, one of the eight major technologies that we think will actually bear fruit here? And of and of the candidates in that group, um, why do you suppose they pick this one or do we have any view on that? Um, I think one of the reasons why they picked this one is because it's a viral vectored vaccine, meaning They've used this multiple times before, and there's licensed vaccines that are like this. And so I think there's a comfort level in um, knowing the safety profile of similar sorts of vaccines, and there's a comfort level with understanding how to manufacture at yeah. scale. And mm-hmm. so that's my guess uh, mm-hmm. as to why this was picked first and why it rose. But, of course, that's this is just a guess on my part. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and so there, but there are, as you've already mentioned, there are multiple modalities, um, and we'll get into those in, in, you know, kind of future discussions of how to create a vaccine. Yes. There's multiple different ways of doing it, and this is just one of those. Right. And as, as we talked about last week as well, it's very important to think about, um, not only, I mean, one vaccine isn't going to be the answer for all populations. So pediatric populations, older people, Will, will kind of require a different type of vaccine typically uh, because the immune system is very is different at those different ages. And so uh, and so just having one is exciting, but having um, a, a more robust kind of toolkit of vaccines to go forward is, is going to be more um, uh, exciting and more encouraging. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, yes, it'll be uh, it'll be it'll be fascinating to see how this goes. Uh, but you're right. Caution is warranted in the timing of that as well. Um, we uh, the, the one thing that we have not figured out in vaccine technology is how to make the human respond faster to shrink the the the, the clinical trial timeline. Right. The, the immune system of people in the trial will uh, will react at the speed at which it does. And um, it will take time for that to happen. And then it will take time to collect data on the placebo versus the, the treated populations. 
and, and determine uh, the significance of the difference between those populations. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in fact, I mean, in future podcasts, more than likely, Dan and Lou and, and, and you and I will talk about various technologies that we think are really promising to speed up that that, uh, that clinical trial process. I think yes. that would be something really good to talk about. We've been spending some time thinking about. But but the purpose of why we're coming here today is testing, testing, testing. <laughs> you know, for um, the past three months, there's been a constant drumbeat of discussion on the need for, the challenges of, and the shortcomings of providing diagnostic tests to combat COVID-19. You know, there's been several estimates available for how much testing is needed for us to really combat um, COVID. And I particularly find, personally, I find um, Dr. Ashish Jha's estimates at the, at, from Harvard to be the most compelling. Um, but regardless of the number of the, the quantity that, that we think we need, it's clear that diagnostics have been a challenge in this pandemic. Um, and so today it's, uh, you know, talking with you about um, why that might be the importance of testing, um, why it's been challenging, and what are the exciting technologies that we should look forward to is, is one of the things that we wanted to talk about right now. Absolutely. You know, um, that <clears throat> that question of how many tests are necessary um, you know, can be illustrated uh, pretty effectively by, by a little story. So imagine you pick 10 people at random out of the population and you test them and they're all positive. Well, there's 10 positive tests. <clears throat> In another scenario, you get 10, you have, you have 10 positive tests after you randomly sample a million people. So if you picked 10 people, if you picked 10 people around the United States and tested them and they were all positive, that would be uh, a very different result than 10 people out of a million that you tested positive, right? So, um, and that's the, that example is the driver behind the thinking of what was done in South Korea. Um, testing until you get a certain, what they call positivity rate. So in the, in the first case, testing 10, you know, 10 positive tests out of 10 done is a 100% positivity rate. Everybody you pick out of a population triggers the test. Um, 10 people out of a million is one in a hundred thousand, a much lower, a much lower rate. <clears throat> so in the first instance, you, what you have a sense intuitively is that you've just nipped off the tip of the iceberg, right? Below, behind those 10 people, the very large number of people who are infected. Um, if you have to sample a million people to get 10, you have confidence that you can follow up on those 10 people and begin to do their, to, con to trace their contacts and really begin to get, uh, to, uh, to test and then isolate and treat, which are the three key, uh, the three key um, uh, issues for controlling at the, at, the, at the public health level. So, so without testing enough of the population, you don't know what the prevalence of the disease is in the population. So you're flying blind without having good data. And data is the most powerful weapon we have against this virus right now. We don't have a good countermeasure. I mean, Resdemivir has shown some positive results in some clinical trials, um, and we don't have a vaccine yet, as we just discussed. Um, so what do we have? We have data, and we have the ability to change behaviors. Real-time monitoring of trends is critical to galvanizing those response efforts that Dylan described in, in, the, in, the, in the top half of the, of the podcast today. Finding cases before they come, become clusters 
clusters before they become explosive epidemics. Kevin, um, there's big buckets of different types of tests. We've heard in the, the, the press these different terms for the different tests, antigen tests, antibody tests, molecular tests. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what are these different tests? And, you know, just generally speaking, what do they tell you? Sure. So the tests are designed to answer one of two different questions. The first question is, does the person in front of me have an active infection with SARS-CoV-2? Okay. And you can tell that by looking for one of two different things. The genome of the virus. Okay. And that's the molecular test that people have talked about. Uh, and the second one is an antigen test. And what that's looking for is a structure, a part of the virus that's part of the coat that surrounds or is the package for that genome. Okay. The second question that you want to ask is, how many people in the population have had uh, an active infection in the past and have cleared it? Okay. So how many people have had an immune response to SARS-CoV-2? And so there's a, uh, there's a test that's called the antibody test <clears throat> that looks for the presence of antibodies in a person's blood as evidence of past exposure or past infection. Okay. So, so generally speaking, um, you know, and there's more nuance to it, but generally speaking, there's this idea of you're looking for active infection Correct. versus past infection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's very tempting because we want very badly for there to be uh, tests that give you yes-no answers that are very specific and very sensitive. Um, and there are limitations to all of these tests that complicate their, ap- their application um, in, in, different, in, in, in different use cases. Okay. So, so one of the obvious and, and most important purposes for the test is diagnosing an individual who has, who, who is suspected to have the disease. And, um, the, and what you want, the, uh, the, the, main char- the, the main quality in a test that you want of that kind is you want it to have a very low false negative rate if you can help it. Okay. And that means I don't want to let somebody out of my clinic who has the disease and I don't know it. Okay, because if you do, you send an infected person back out into the community and and they can have more spread. Exactly. You'd like to be sure that you isolate them um, or if 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 they're if they're infected and um, uh, they they may um, they may need to be isolated either at the hospital or if they're getting sicker and sicker, you may wish to admit them. Uh, And and if you admit them to the hospital, then you want your healthcare workers to know that this person has an active uh, COVID-19 infection uh, so that they can take. Uh, all of the necessary protective measures that they will need to do to keep themselves and other patients in the hospital um, safe. Okay. Yeah. And so, so you've talked about two really important reasons for actually doing this testing. One is to find who has active infection and what either treatment you need to give them or what kind of isolation that they should stay in to protect from ongoing spread. And then this idea of protecting specific groups like the frontline healthcare workers or even the uh, residents of long-term healthcare facilities and that sort of thing. Um, it's also, you, you'd mentioned previously as well as this idea of test, trace, and isolate. How is testing really critical for this, uh, this function of going into the communities and doing contact tracing? That's right. Well, 
So, um, again, uh, it's similar to the people that, that turn up at the hospital during triage. Um, when you find somebody that you believe has had, um, either has had or, or has an active uh, COVID-19 infection, you want to find as many people who have had contact with that person and test them as well. Um, and if you're unable to, if you're unable to do testing, you're unable to catch people who may be asymptomatic, but may, but may be capable of spreading the virus. And we know that there's a number of people who are asymptomatic and carry the virus for some for some period of time until their immune system uh, clears their body of that. Um, and uh, but they don't know it. And so if you can't, again, if you're if you can't test and you can't identify these people, you're flying blind. From the contact tracing perspective, yeah, and and what what the best epidemiological evidence that we've seen so far is that you know there's this what's referred to as what Kevin's referring to is this either asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic stage where mm -hmm. people aren't exhibiting symptoms but they're shedding virus and spreading it uh, amongst them. So, you know, somewhere anywhere between five two to five days prior to symptom onset is what a lot of people have seen as um, the maximal period of time for viral shedding and, and transmission. And so that's why trying to figure out who these people are is, is somewhat critical. Now, um, you know, testing has been a challenge. And so what, why has testing been a challenge? I mean, what, is, what are the, some of the big reasons why it's been so challenging uh, in getting this right? So we've never experienced, you know, in, in, the, in the modern era, uh, a pandemic of this scope. So testing at scale and with the speed that we need to do this has never been necessary before. You know, we really have been caught flat-footed here um, as a nation, really as a world, <clears throat> uh, because we just did not have, we didn't have uh, either the, we didn't have the available sort of on-tap manufacturing capacity, nor did we really have sort of plans and procedures in place for ramping that up and for managing a supply chain of the supplies necessary to do this. Not just the tests themselves, right, and the instrument, the laboratory instruments that do this, that perform these tests, but, uh, but also uh, the equipment that you could use to do testing on site, and then all the supplies necessary to do the testing. The, again, the, the notorious uh, nasal, uh, nasopharyngeal swabs, um, the, the personal protective equipment, it's, it's, it's been important not only in the hospital but also in the testing arena. Um, and then um, the market incentives have been misaligned with this need for speed. And what we mean here is that um, that uh, the way that testing equipment and testing uh, reagents have been marketed and sold have locked people into particular systems in many cases. Um, if you buy uh, a, a instrument A from vendor A, you have to often use the cartridge made by that vendor. And if that's the equipment that you have, then you are locked into that vendor's manufacturing capacity. Now, there are sort of general purpose or what we call in the business open architecture systems. And many developers of tests that are, that are, that are entering the market are making chemistries for these open architecture tests. You may have one of any of several instruments that could use this chemistry, <clears throat> um, but uh, um, uh, but even in that case, the capacity to manufacture even those chemistries has been um, has been problematic. Um, and uh, another 
another um, another challenge that I want to bring up relative to the contact tracing use case in particular is the time it takes, is the logistics of getting your sample to the place where the test will happen, or the, where the chemistry will happen, I should say. Um, and this gets into, um, this is a, uh, we're, we're flirting with, with one of my favorite topics, which is, if I had, if I had a magic wand, what is the, what's my dream assay or my dream diagnostic test that we will, that, that, that one could come up with, and that'll be the topic that we'll, that we'll talk about later. But, um, <clears throat> But if you take the swab from the person when you're out in the community doing contact tracing, it has to go to a laboratory and get the test done. In the meantime, if that person hasn't, is in fact positive, you won't know it. The, the, the community health worker won't know it for the length of time it takes to get the sample to the lab and the lab to do the test. And then during that time, that person is out creating more contacts and creating more work for the, the community health care worker. The, the chain gets longer the more time that passes. So, so that's a challenge right there. If you could do the test right when the person is sitting in front of you, um, that would be tremendous. And there's a couple of systems that allow that, but again, they are expensive. Um, they're, uh, some of their tests are not as sensitive as perhaps we initially hoped. Uh, we won't name any names on this podcast, um, but, uh, but those of us uh, who are reading the press regularly know that, um, that those names are out there. Um, so... so yeah, and so we've talked about a handful of things in terms of, you know, there's there's been challenge, there's a variety of tests for a variety of purposes. There's challenges with each one of them um, from marketplace um, uh, incentives being misaligned. There's um, challenges of actually getting the tests back so that they're epidemiologically meaningful. Um, and then there's, you know, um, we briefly mentioned this kind of idea of cis supply chain challenges of maintaining those kinds of things. And you brought up this really intriguing idea, though, too. It's like if you had the magic wand, what would be the diagnostic technology that you would want? Or the flip side, what technologies are out there that are really exciting you um, that would allow you to get to where you want to go? Sure. Well, you know, um, <clears throat> there's a whole podcast that we could do on that very topic, and I think we will probably in the next several weeks. Um, but I will just say very quickly here uh, that uh, there are um, – uh, biology uh, biology fans will know that over the last several years, uh, a very exciting uh, genome editing chemistry called CRISPR uh, has come to the fore, and some clever people on the, both the West and East Coasts have figured out how to use CRISPR and related technologies to perform very sensitive molecular diagnostic tests and do it in a way that you could manufacture that is kind of in form factor like the home pregnancy test kit. So these would be very sensitive, as sensitive as laboratory, uh, as laboratory molecular tests, uh, as specific as they are because they, uh, they, they are designed on similar principles in terms of their targeting, uh, but very inexpensive to manufacture at scale. And so you can imagine um, a, a community health worker who is doing contact tracing with a bag of these things they're single-use disposable, and uh, when you find a person that is on your contact trace, uh, you administer the test right there on the spot. There's no equipment to haul around with you. Um, you know, they spit in a tube, you apply the sample to the test, and in 10 to 15 minutes, you get your answer, and the contact tracer can either uh, enter the person, you know, into uh, a, a system of mitigations, or the person is negative, and the contact tracer can move on. So, 
Uh, we will talk more about that uh, and the companies behind it and some of the, the science around those uh, in a future edition. Cool. Yeah. And so, so some of the features that you're really looking for, though, are ease of use, speed of result, inexpensive, and um, not requiring a lot of sample prep in any yeah. kind of capacity. Right. And not requiring a great deal. That's right. Easy to use is key, right? Because the, the number of people that you have to employ in contact tracing uh, is huge. And as you said, we, we will talk and we have talked before about technology augmenting contact tracing. Uh, but it's still a it's still a very human to human pursuit, right? And and people are and and you need to be able to train people easily on how to do this. So they're about as easy to use um, as as home pregnancy test kits. Um, you don't pee on them, so that that part is that part not that part. Okay. What you do in your own time, Kevin, is use your own That's business. business. That's <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Um, super. Well, you know. Um, um, this has been really great. I mean, it, there's a reason why we love having Kevin uh, on the team, and it's you've seen this already, is that the depth of knowledge, the, the pursuit of uh, the details, and uh, an extensive understanding of, of the testing industry um, and technologies. And, and for that reason, it was just, you know, we wanted to have a, a little bit of a discussion as to the testing generally, uses, challenges, potentials, and the things that we're excited about, because Diagnostics have been a challenge in the outbreak and are critical for how we respond to it. Uh, and so um, thank you, Kevin, for uh, spending time uh, with the listeners to, to help them understand this, this critical uh, topic as well. Oh, thank you. And, you know, uh, I have no doubt that we will be back here again. You know, uh, we, we are uh, – this is a marathon, not a sprint, uh, unfortunately. Uh, you know, it's – as you say, Dylan, often this is – this is not like a natural disaster where uh, you know, there's a boom impact event and then there's a long recovery. Um, the boom phase here is very long and drawn out and understanding it, uh, it, and it's hard to see. It's not like a volcano explodes, uh, a hurricane uh, devastates a city. Um, you, you, it's very hard to see other than the toll that it takes on people. And, uh, and we're going to be here for a while. Uh, as we said, the vaccine, uh, the vaccine, if it, you know, gosh, if it's if it's here by the end of the year, um, it'll be the it'll be the fastest you know uh, it'll be the fastest vaccine development program that I'm aware of. Um, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, thanks again for taking the time to explain uh, testing, uh, testing technologies, and uh, what what could be possible. Um, and with that, clearly, we're going to be talking more about uh, these testing technologies in, in future podcasts. But until then, stay safe. Stay well and be happy. Take care. Thanks.